Our talk has been focusing on hospitality for the last couple of weeks. In fact, if you remember, this is what we've done for the last few weeks. We've walked through kind of why are we studying this in an intro. We looked at hospitalities in the scriptures. And last week, we focused primarily on Matthew 25, on Jesus being the stranger, Jesus being the guest, and of course, Jesus ultimately being the king who is himself the host. Tonight I thought I would just kind of give you a couple reflections on hospitality as we start to move towards the practical issues next week. There's a a part of a sermon I want to read to you. It's from Robert Baker, his Easter sermon, and it's reproduced in this book by Michelle Hirschberger called The Christian View of Hospitality. And it goes something like this. It actually reflects on Matthew 25. Let me just read this to you, and I want you just to kind of think about it in light of the fact that we said last week that the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Here's Robert Baker's reflection in an Easter sermon. I usually meet Jesus on Tuesday. And on that day I meet him at least ten times. I do not meet him on the road to Damascus, the road to Gaza, or the road to Emmaus. Instead I meet him on Portage Lane on Burr Oak Place, on Bontrager Drive, and at the low-cost housing on Pleasant Plain. I see him also on Turner Street. In fact, I see him twice on Turner Street. And of course, always I meet him on Hiawatha Drive. In fact, during the summer, I often meet Jesus twice a week on Hiawatha. Always at the same place, 310 Hiawatha. If you ring the bell, you will not recognize it as Jesus who answers, but it is. Of course, we old people often see things younger people do not. Too bad, you miss a lot. Recently, I met Jesus at 2612 DeCamp Court. Such a lovely Jesus. Did you know that Jesus is black at 2612? But I have no trouble recognizing him. It's the only place I go on Tuesday where Jesus is not only black, but I see him in double form. It's remarkable what you see when you're older. But the Jesus I see at 2612 is a she. Not only that, but Mrs. Jesus is in a wheelchair. But that doesn't stop her from smiling. She always smiles and thanks me, and so does Mr. Jesus, who lives with her. Sometimes when I meet Mrs. Jesus in her wheelchair, I gently touch her hand and say a word or two. Sometimes when I meet Jesus on Tuesdays as I do my mobile meal route, Jesus is crying. Sometimes I've knelt beside Jesus' chair where he is crying and I pray for Jesus. Did you know that you could pray for Jesus? Or did you think that Jesus only prays for you? You can. When I pray for Jesus, I pray that his home nursing care will not stop. That he will not have to go to the nursing home. That his daughter will visit him. I I feel very close to Jesus. I wish I could stay there, but I have to hurry because Jesus is waiting down the road down the street for his hot mobile meal that I deliver each week on Route 1. Did you say that this is not really Jesus? That the Salvation Army only delivers meals to people, people like me, like you? Did you say I'm mixed up, that I should get some help, see a psychiatrist? Sorry, I may need to see a psychiatrist, but I don't believe he can convince me that I don't see Jesus each Tuesday. You see, Jesus himself told me, as much as you do it unto these My brothers and sisters, you do it unto me. So doesn't that prove I meet Jesus and see him each Tuesday? I think so. I figure those people on my mobile meal route 
who look like Tanya, Sylvia, Cora, Margaret, and all the others are really Jesus in disguise. But they don't fool me because behind their mask is Jesus. Sometimes in the winter, instead of carrying a hot meal to Jesus, I carry a snow shovel, a small snow blower. And then Jesus has other names, lives other places. Then his name is Ruby, Jean, Irma, Anita, or Helen. Then Jesus lives on Sterling or Indiana or Huron. In the winter, when I meet Jesus at such places, he comes to the door and says, thank you. Once he said, I don't know what I would do without you. Think of that. And I don't know what I would do without Jesus. But whether Jesus comes to the door or not to thank me, we still talk to one another while I shovel the snow. Did you know that Jesus who lives on Huron has a dog? I hear him barking. I think that Jesus who lives on Huron uses oxygen and has trouble coming to the door. So he has the dog bark to thank me. Yes, as strange as it seems, we still talk through the walls of the little house at 1602 Huron. One of the nicest things about being retired is that you have more time to meet Jesus. It's better than social security or teacher pension checks. You see, sometimes we are so busy that we do not even recognize Jesus when we see him. Then, like Mary at the tomb, we ask, where is Jesus? Tell me so that I can go to him. And all the time, Jesus is standing right there beside us, sitting in a wheelchair or lying in a sickbed, and we don't see him. We just don't see him. I think that should give us at least an Easter reflection on Matthew 25 from a different perspective of seeing Jesus in others. And that's really the point. You know, last week we spent time trying to understand what is this passage saying? Did it change over the centuries? Do we understand it differently? Does, do we really need to put ourselves in Matthew's mind to get it? We've been talking for about three weeks about how to give hospitality. And we haven't really talked much about receiving it. You know, I want to be clear that I still think that giving hospitality is troubling for some of us. It's difficult. I think we're struggling with it somewhere inside. And we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, like how we might do it. How is it possible to do? Because I think it's not as easy as we think. So I don't want to say that there's no struggle with that. In fact, I think we should stay on that topic for a little bit longer. But I put up this on the screen. For those of us for whom giving hospitality is a little bit easier, we might struggle in a different area. And here's where we might struggle. If we really look at our heart openly, sometimes hospitality is a form of control. Sometimes hospitality is a way to distance ourselves from others. We often can hide behind our hospitality. Hospitality is a way for us to be doing something that keeps us from having to receive hospitality from someone else because we're uncomfortable doing so. So I want you to be clear that we need to examine sometimes where is it that our hospitality comes from. It can be a form of pride. I mean, a clear and simple example of pride is when we're giving hospitality to show how much we have. I don't think that anyone in our group really suffers from that, but that can be just an example of hospitality that's soaked in pride. But sometimes it's just soaked in self-reliance. Sometimes it's soaked in the fact that we don't want to receive from somebody else because it's strange to do so. I put on the screen that hospitality can separate us from others. Think of this example of when you're serving other people. You could even be serving and do something well, like say, I'm going to go and serve 
in a kitchen that serves some of the needy. But we often end up doing the things that we're comfortable doing, like I'll cook, I'll serve, I'll clean up, instead of actually engaging in true hospitality with someone, not for someone. And that's a very difficult thing where we're almost separating ourselves from the very people that we're with. We should be with them. Our hospitality should be to give, but many times we use it to distance ourselves because we're very comfortable and able to say, yes, I have something and I can give it to you, but it's very difficult to break down and sit in a place where we can actually receive from one another. Even if it's just nothing more than their perspective on life, or even if it's more, nothing more than the difficulties that they're facing, that would somehow put our own lives into perspective. So we have to be very careful that hospitality can be these things, where you can see people that in their activity, they're distancing people, whether they intend to or not. Sometimes I even catch myself doing this. In the busyness of running around on Wednesday night and trying to cook this and cook that, I realize, like, I don't know that I actually spent time with any one person to actually engage with them because I was trying to make sure that the food came out right the whole time. And at the end of the day, I don't think the food coming out right is the paramount thing of our hospitality. It really has more to do with the way we engage with one another. I think the truth here is that we're far more comfortable giving than receiving. Now, I, I still say that some of us still have difficulty giving. Some of us are giving with a closed fist instead of with an open hand. But even for those people, even for all of us, it's often easier still to give, even begrudgingly, than to actually receive. I think receiving requires vulnerability. You have to put yourself in a place to receive. Think about this like even just receiving a compliment. Are you comfortable receiving compliments? Is there a good way to do it? I, if, you, if there is, would you tell me now? This is interactive. Like, tell me how to do it. I can't do it. I feel very awkward. I feel like it's so hard. Like, somebody will come up to me and go, wow, that was really, really fantastic. You know, and you're like, I feel so awkward at that moment. I don't know how to do it. But it's more that kind of vulnerability of, Letting someone do that without you feeling like, okay, so do I have to do something in return? Like to actually be vulnerable enough to receive from somebody. I think it also takes a lot of humility. Yes? I was just thinking like, I think also whenever, like you said, whenever someone says thank you, you're actually, again, doing that person a service too. You know what I mean? Like if I was to tell you like, that was a great meal. Thank you so much for purchasing that and cooking that. Whenever you say um, thank you, that's actually a gift to me. Why? Why do you feel that way? Um, well, first of all, to be clear, I don't say that in order to get a thank you. But whenever you, it, I don't know, it's, like, it's just like you're engaging with me. It's like validating. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like it builds upon each other and it's just a beautiful thing. So I think it puts us in a vulnerable place. It puts us in a humble place. I think it actually requires that we break through awkwardness. I mean, you've, you've heard it from me that it, when I become the Pope of Christianity, when, <laughs> when, when I can speak ex cathedra, 
I would ban the side hug. It would be probably my first act. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, is there something odd about those of us in Christ who are supposed to be so unified that our union is described very much as a oneness, and yet when we greet one another, we find the most distancing way to do it? We've, we actually teach it in a way to, to intentionally distance people. You know, when I say you need to be vulnerable, I might mean that to receive hospitality, you might have to allow me to actually touch you. You might have to allow me to actually give you food or to spend time with you where it isn't at Starbucks, like it's somewhere, because that's the kind of thing that we're talking about in a way. So we do have to break through awkwardness, and it is awkward. I'm not saying it's not awkward. There are times when I feel it. I know that we are trying to build a real common unity from lives that have come from all different places. Let's not lie. If we are really a common unity, a community, then we need to actually act in ways that further that. And that includes receiving from you. And that hospitality is not always food. It's not always an invitation in home. It cannot just be love. And it can be affection that's so needed in a world where many of us are starving for real connection. And yet we invent ways to distance ourselves from others. I think it does require that we pull down barriers. Why do we put the barriers up in the first place? Is it because we want to have people see us a certain way? Is it because we want to see ourselves a certain way? Is it because it's very difficult for us to actually admit that there are parts of us that we don't like, that others won't like? There's just no other way. If we put up barriers, for whatever the reason is, then we're putting up barriers to that common unity that we're claiming we have. And hospitality is the primary way to tear that down. See, I think Chris is onto something. Receiving is a gift to the one who is giving to you. If you do not receive well, you're actually thwarting the very person who's trying to give to you. It's destroying that common unity, first of all. But it's thwarting their effort. I mean, somebody wants to do something and we find ways to diminish it. Maybe not even intentionally. But we are diminishing it by saying no. And putting up the barrier. Maybe because we feel uncomfortable. Maybe because we feel awkward. Maybe because we don't want to work through the difficulty of the situation. And in reality, we are just thwarting them. I was talking recently about just even the difficulty that I have receiving. Even from this group. I mean, many of you got together and gave Lena and I a gift over Christmas. And it was, I mean, there's always that part of me that says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. I mean, we can do that. You know, we can clearly afford to get that. We don't need to have somebody get that. But that's thwarting the very act that's being given. The fact that I would be taking away from those who want to give and want to show hospitality and want to express their generosity and want to just love and bless us, I would be taking away their opportunity to do that. By what? My control? My desire to be in control and show that I'm okay? Is it pride that I don't need that? Is it shyness? Is it awkwardness? Because I don't know what to say, how to express thanks adequately because I'm more comfortable giving than I am receiving, all of which are true. 
But that's the reason that the discipline of receiving hospitality eventually grows into a relationship where maybe the discipline disappears and it's just replaced by an actual desire to give and receive. One-way relationships don't work. They're not healthy. They're not healthy at all. We know that. And yet, we often don't realize how much we put up a way to stop someone from giving us and blessing us with hospitality. If we've been talking for three weeks about how central it is to the Christian life that we are hospitable, then we need to realize that our receipt of it enables other people to live into the centrality of the Christian life. And if we thwart that, then we're actually contributing to furthering that person from the very desire that Christ had for them, and of course for us as well. Look at this passage from Scripture. You might remember it. A Holy Week passage from John 13 as the disciples were spending the last moments with Christ. Let me read to you verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning from God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Look at the so that in there. Look at the reason that he puts the towel around his waist. It's because he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And then he'd come from God and was returning to God. I mean, he's just talking about he has all position, all power. He can give all things, do all things. And so for that reason, he humbles himself, takes off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Here is somebody who clearly at this moment has difficulty with Jesus washing his feet. He has difficulty receiving this act of servanthood, of humility, of great love. And maybe he has good motives like, Jesus, there's no way. I know who you are. I'm not going to allow you to wash my feet. Or maybe he's taking away something from Peter for a moment, like maybe that's something he wanted to do to the others. Whatever the reason is, it doesn't matter. He stops him, and again, and in a way, is attempting to thwart Jesus from doing this act. Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We have no common unity. You have no portion of mine. We are not partners. We have no joint relationship unless you let me do this. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. When Peter realizes what it means to receive this act, he says, not just my feet, all of me. Every part of me then. If that's what it takes to be in partnership with you, to be partners with you, to have an inheritance with you, 
than not just my feet, but all of me. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said that not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, it's strange that this last part of the passage creates a standard and a model that we're to follow. And I don't know that he was just saying this figuratively. Jesus said that you will remember me in the bread and the cup, and you will do this in remembrance of me, and we do that frequently. Many of our church traditions will teach this passage, but they'll kind of stop there. In one tradition, in some parts of the Mennonite tradition, for example, every communion service is accompanied by a service that includes washing of the feet of all of the saints who are gathered. And so tonight, we're actually going to do that. We're going to practice receiving in ways that we might not expect or even desire right away. And it's a way for us to break down even our own awkwardness or discomfort and to say that we're going to follow Jesus' model in a way of saying, we will receive. We will receive from one another in the same way that we receive from Jesus from this table. I'm going to invite you in just a second as we go through the liturgy of communion to come up. We're going to have two chairs up here, and I want you just to take off your shoes, take off your socks, and let us wash your feet. And after we've done so, then I want you to come and take the communion elements and then just sit back down and wait till everyone's done. And then we're going to take communion together in an act of common unity. So let me uh, go into communion. We remember, O oh Father, in accordance with his command, how Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread and gave you thanks and praise. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body, which will be given up for you. When supper was ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave you thanks and praise and then gave the cups to his disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the everlasting one. It will be shed for you and for all that your sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death. We proclaim the death of Lord Jesus Christ until you come back in glory.